Welcome. It's good to see you this morning. I, uh, we're, for those of you who may not be regular attenders, uh, we have at our church here for the last year been walking through the book of Acts. So if you've got your Bible with you, uh, that's where we're going to spend a bunch of time this morning. If you don't have a Bible but would like to follow along, there's one right at the back there. Uh, by the sound booth. There's a whole cart with a bunch of them. And we're going to be in Acts, the 27th chapter. But before we get there, you know, as we've been walking through this, uh, this year in the book of Acts, I, in my uh, chapter a day blogging journey, went through and I blogged through all of Paul's letters that are in the New Testament in chronological order, beginning with Galatians and Thessalonians and then going on into the Corinthians and making my way so that as he wrote them, the best to our knowledge, I kind of walked through. And one of the things that I noticed is that as Paul matured and grew and got older, this firebrand of a passionate person became more mellow peace, and content. So let me give you a couple of examples. If you're taking notes and want to follow along, the first one is in Philippians. I'm going to go to the letter to the Philippians. It's one of the, uh, one of the later books that he wrote. So now he is, he's growing a little bit older. He's been through a lot of his trials and his tribulations. And in the first chapter of Philippians, he said, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? Did you hear that? What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. This is the Paul who didn't want John Mark to go along with him because he didn't think he could handle it, got so angry with Silas, they split ways. And now he's saying, look, whatever. There's people out there preaching out of selfish ambition. What does it matter? Just that Christ is preached. And in this, I rejoice. Go to the fourth chapter of Philippians, verses 11 through 13. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content. I want you to mark that. I have learned to be content in any circumstance. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, whether in safety or the storm, I can do all this. And what do you say? Through Christ who strengthens me. What I love about that, you know, this is the verse that we put on all of our trinkets, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, we put on our t-shirts so when we go to CrossFit, we're going, oh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When what Paul is really saying there is I can be content in any circumstance. First Timothy, just a couple of books over. 
First Thessalonians and then First Timothy. And Timothy, the Timothys, Timothy 1 and 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy were the last two letters that Paul wrote. And he's writing to his young protege. And he says in verses six, uh, chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, Godliness with, there it is again, contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing... We'll be content with that. And then he goes on to say that those who want to get rich plunge themselves into many temptations and trials. So this is important to understand where Paul is at in his mindset as we get to Acts 27. So let's go there. Paul is on a mission. Let's get a map up if we could. I would appreciate that. Paul is on his mission. He is going to Rome. He has... He has done the things that have prompted, he's appealed to Caesar as a Roman citizen, so now he has to go to Rome and stand before Caesar and be tried by Caesar. That's his mission. So let's start in chapter 27, verse 1. When it was decided that we, why does it say we? Because Luke, who is writing the book of Acts, is with him. Uh, Luke wrote the gospel of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. So Luke is with Paul. And he says, um, we should sail for Italy. Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius. Now, you got to understand that in the Roman Empire, they didn't, have a, they didn't have a correctional naval system. So they didn't, in order to get to Rome, the prisoner, Paul and a couple other prisoners, were put in charge of the centurion who's in charge of 100 men, part of the imperial regiment. So it was the centurion's job to book passage on a merchant ship. So he books passage for Paul. We good? Okay. He books passage for Paul and the other prisoners and all the soldiers that are with them on this ship. We, uh, we boarded the ship in Adramtium, about to sail for ports along the coast in the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica was, with, Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed in Sidon. So there we go. Can you see? We started in Caesarea. We now went up to uh, Sidon. And Julius, the centurion who was in charge of Paul, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go with his friends so they might provide for his needs. Remember we talked a couple weeks about the fact that Paul was a Roman citizen, and as a Roman citizen, he got perks that nobody else got? Well, this is, uh, two things are happening here. One, as a Roman citizen, Paul had standing with Julius. It's kind of like, I know we've got some business people in here. You know, it's kind of like traveling on business, right? After you travel so much in business, you get perks, you get status. And the more status and perks you get, the more wealth you're treated by the airline or the hotel. And you get things that other people don't get. Same thing here. Because he's a Roman citizen, Julius allows Paul to go be with the fellow believers there in Sidon. And there's also something happening between Julius and Paul. There's a relationship that's forming between them. Because we all know Paul. He was trying to share the gospel with Julius. You know that he was, right? So Julius lets him go, and from there we put out to sea again, and we passed the Lee of Cyprus. Now, Lee is a nautical term. It simply means the sheltered from the wind part of it. So as 
they go around Cyprus, the wind traditionally would be coming up from the south and the west, so they went to the north and east so that they could be sheltered from the Mediterranean winds. Easier to sail that way. We sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, and we landed at Myra in Lycia. So you can see Myra there. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship. So what we know is that in Caesarea, Julius said, I need to book passage, I need to get to Rome. Well, there's no ships going to Rome, but we can get you as far as, as Meyer. Okay, so they get to Meyer. Now he's got to find another ship that will get them to Rome. Uh, put us on board, and verse 7, we made slow headway for many days, and of course, we sailed to the Lee. Uh, had difficulty, I'm sorry, we had uh, difficulty arriving off Smithus. Love these names, don't you? All right. So they're already having trouble. Now, here's what I want you to get. Paul, during this part of the journey, they're already having trouble. He is observing the sailors and the captain. There's 270-some people on board this ship, and Paul is kind of watching what's happening. They're having trouble. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Cyprus there, okay, or uh, uh, that little uh, lee of Crete opposite Salmone. And so now the winds are shifting, so they're coming along where they'll be sheltered there, and they reach the Fair Havens near the town of Lassia. Now, Fair Havens, I want you to notice, is uh, open to the south, and typically in the Mediterranean, the winds are going to be coming up from the south and the west, so it's not a great place to winter, and it was a small fishing village. It's just a kind of a little bitty piece of a, of, a, of a port. So it's not a good place. It's starting to become winter. Uh, much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous. Because by now, it was almost the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them. So Paul was still Paul, right? So he goes before Julius and the captain, and he says, uh, Man, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous. Because what? I've been watching you guys, and you're not doing a very good job. This is not a good decision. We can feel the winds changing. I've been watching you guys, and this is not going to be good. So we should do this. So I can see the voyage is going to be disastrous, bring great loss to ship and cargo, and our lives also. But the centurion, Julius, instead of listening to Paul, he followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship, and I can just hear him. Hey, it's okay. We're, we're experienced sailors. It's all good. Done this a million times. And Paul's rolling his eyes. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. Now, Phoenix is around the other side of Crete, where it was kind of sheltered from two directions. So they would have to go along the coast of Crete and up around it, but it's pretty dangerous even to do that in those waters. Uh, so, verse 13, with the gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. So they weighed anchor, sailed across the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called a northeaster. So now the wind's coming this way from the northeast, and they're trying to get up north 
uh, from the northwest and turn around, it's not going to go so well. Before very long, uh, the ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Kauda, and you can see Kauda there, so they're coming through there, and be, it's the lee side is now to the south because the wind's coming from the north. 14 days. Do you see from Kauda to Malta? 14 days. Hurricane winds, rain, storm, blown around, seasick. They can do nothing but be driven by the storm. We were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, verse 17. So the men hoisted it aboard, and then they passed ropes under the ship to hold the ship together because they were afraid that we would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. And when you know when you're throwing away money, it's serious. They're throwing the cargo overboard, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Neither the sun nor stars appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging, and we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they'd gone for a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice. He's still Paul. Should have taken my advice. Not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spread yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage. Now here's what I want you to see. Paul is at peace. Paul is calm. Paul is content. And Paul is concerned with the well-being of others. Because not one of you will be lost... Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, and he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we're going to have to run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings. In other words, they dropped a rope with like a rock on it, and they'd go down, and then they'd measure where the bottom of the ocean was. And then they'd say by how much rope, how deep it was. And then they took soundings again, and it went from, uh, from 20, 120 down to 90 feet, and they know that they're getting closer to land, but they can't see. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down the sea. So the sailors are going, yeah, you guys be, yeah, we'll be right there. And they were going to get in the lifeboat and uh, try and escape. Then Paul said <laughs> to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you can't be saved. So the centurion, by now, Julian... And uh, the Roman soldiers were trusting Paul. So they cut the ropes, let the lifeboat go. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. Again, he's looking out, taking care, loving others. 
14 days, you've been a constant suspense, have gone without food, you haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need, you need it to survive. No one of you will lose a single hair from your head. And after he said this, he took bread and he gave thanks in front of them all. What does that sound like? And he broke it and began to eat. And they were all encouraged, ate some food themselves. All together, 276 of us on board. And when they eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. And when daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea, and at the same time, untied the ropes that held the rudders. They hoisted the foresail to the wind, made for the beach, but the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding waves." The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. Why? Because if the prisoners escape, the centurions get killed. That's the deal. If you're in charge of a prisoner, if they escape, it's your life. So they were going to kill the prisoners themselves to save their own lives. But the centurion, Julian, wanted to spare Paul's life. And he kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to get to land. The rest were there to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. And in this way, everyone reached land safely. You know, as I was reading and studying the passage this morning, or this week in preparation for this morning, it reminded me of a dream that I had uh, several years ago. And I was standing outside of a building and I looked at the horizon. Now, I've, I'm not a, one to have lots of dreams where I know they mean something. I, I, mean, I remember one time I had a dream that I was riding a whale shark down the River Thames in London. Did it mean anything? No, I had got bad pepperoni the night before or something. But it was, this dream meant something. I was standing outside and I knew that this meant something when I woke up. I looked out to the horizon. There were, there were all these little spindly tornadoes, little ones. A bunch of them, and they were weaving in and out on the horizon and moving towards me. And so I ran into the building uh, there, and the storm passed, nothing happened. All of a sudden, I was back outside looking at the same horizon, and this time I saw the biggest, baddest F5 tornado you would ever believe and it was heading toward me, and you could feel the rumble. And I ran back inside the building, and God said, don't be afraid, just watch. And all of a sudden, I had a video camera in my hand. And the storm hit, and glass shattered, and steel beams fell from the sky, and the building blew apart, and people were screaming, and I was perfectly content, standing in witness, because the Lord of the storm had ordained that I be there, and I'd be a witness to whatever was happening. What does it mean? I don't know. Not yet, fully. But do you know that storms are a theme that God uses time and time again in Scripture for different reasons? And if we don't understand what he's trying to say to us 
Through the storm, throughout all of the scripture, we're going to miss something important that he has to say to us. In Genesis 5, the great flood of Noah, the rain fell from the sky and flooded the earth. And what was God doing? God was purging his creation. He was refining his creation. Just as in 1 Peter 1, 6 or 7, it says, now for a little while, you're going to suffer you hear that? You are going to suffer all kinds of trials and griefs so that your faith, refined by fire, will result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Some of us in this room are going through some storms in life right now. And God is honing us He's maturing us. He has purpose to grow us up, to become the people of God's kingdom that he were called to be to serve his purposes. So take heart, my brothers and sisters, because remember the story. After the flood came the rainbow and the promise. In Job 1, the enemy, our enemy who Goes around, the Bible says, prowling like a, a lion, seeking who he may devour. Goes to God and says, I want your servant Job. And in a storm, the enemy attacks Job. His family is killed. His farm is decimated. He loses everything in his life. The storm raged on, took his assets, his wealth, health, his wealth, his, it killed his entire family. He suffers loss. He's suffering, he's alone, he's destitute, and all he's got is these three yahoos of friends who try to inspire him with all sorts of words. It's like, which, and it really just inspires the phrase with friends like you who needs enemies. Some of us in this room are experiencing storms. We are experiencing the enemy's assault on our life. We have suffered loss. We have suffered pain. The destroyer has come to lie and to deceive and to tear down our faith and diminish our hope and to steal our joy. But may I remind you, brothers and sisters, that the Lion of Judah is Lord of the storm. And out of the storm, God called to Job and said, brace yourself like a man. And after the storm was over, despite Job's doubt and discouragement and de depression and despair, the Lord restored his fortunes and blessed him twofold. In Exodus 5, God is trying to get through to Pharaoh and hail and uh, falls from the sky and lightning and thunder, just as Moses had warned him. And the storm raged and the hail struck everything and it peeled out the crops and it destroyed everything. And God was trying to get through to hard-hearted Pharaoh. He wanted Pharaoh to understand that I am God and I want you to turn from your doubt and your disbelief and your pride, and I want you to turn to me and understand and let my people go. 
For some of us, circumstances fallen from the sky on us and stripped us of joy and hope and health. For those in this room who do not know him, can I tell you that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is Lord of the stone. He does not desire that anyone perish, but that everyone come to the saving knowledge of who he is. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world. You hear that? John 3, 17. God did not come, Jesus did not come to this earth to condemn it, but to save it. And his desire is for you. He is trying to get through. Some, for some of us, God has been trying to get your attention. So in the midst of your storm, will you do something for me? Listen for a knock. Because in Revelation, says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if you open the door and you invite me in, I'm going to come in. And we're going to sit down and we're going to have a meal. And on the other end of this storm is all the blessing of faith and hope and love that the Lord of Storm has to bring. In Jonah, the first chapter, God asked Jonah to go to Nineveh, which is uh, kind of the northwest about, uh, by land. Jonah instead books passage on this very way, from, from right there around Caesarea, he books passage to Tarshish, which you see there, uh, it, it goes off this map all the way to the end of the Mediterranean. In other words, he decided, Jonah did, that I am going to go as far as I can to the, utter, to the eastmost end of the earth because I don't want to do what God wants me to do. So what does God do? He sends a storm. And the seas rage, this same sea, the seas rage, the storm, the ship's going to be broken up. And the, the, the sailors say, who brought this on me? And Jonah knew. Yep, I did. I did. Throw me overboard, you'll be saved. So he throws him overboard. Brothers and sisters, some of us are facing storms in life, and we're jerking around going, God, why is this happening to me? Because it's our own stupid choices. It's our own willful decisions. It's our rebellion. It's our desire. I don't want to go the way God wants me to go. I'm going to go this way. I want to do what I want to do. I want to make the choices I want. I want the pleasures that I want. And so what happens? We bring down the storm of consequences to our own choices and decisions. Some of us are in the midst of a storm that has fallen down on us because of, because of ourselves. But can I remind you that the God of Jonah, the God of the prophets, is Lord of the storm. If you get up, like, like the prodigal, if you get up out of the pig slop of your own decisions and choices and rebellion, Father God is waiting for you with open arms to welcome you in and embrace you to put a ring on your finger and a, a, a robe around you and to kill the fatted calf and let's have a pate. 
in the eighth chapter of Luke, Jesus and his entourage, uh, and his entourage of experienced fishermen, no doubt, are crossing the Sea of Galilee. And a squall comes up on the Sea of Galilee, much like a, a summer thunderstorm in Iowa. It just happens. And, but these, these fishermen are so distraught that they, they like going, oh, we're going to die. And Jesus is asleep in the bow of the boat. So they wake him up. Some of us in this room are facing storms in our lives. But guess what? It's the stuff of life. What did Jesus say? Yeah, the Father causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Sometimes you just have storms in life. They just happen. And as much as you want, there's no one to blame. As much as you want it to be, maybe there's really no reason. This is just life. It's the stuff that everybody in humanity has to go through. And may I remind you, if you're in the boat and you're facing a storm and there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason, if you know Jesus Christ, then the Lord of the storm is in your boat. So take courage, because even the wind and the sea obey him. In Luke 23, about noon, a blanket of clouds covered the sky. Storm clouds gathered, you know, like, the, like when it looks like the mothership in Independence Day, the movie, it's coming over. And everything went black. And the earth shook. Shook so much, the veil in the temple was split in two. And the Son of God, bloody and bruised and hanging on a cross, cried out, My God! Daddy! Why have you forsaken me? And death came for the author of life. In the last two years, Kevin said last week, in our bulletins, in the last two years, 170 families have been listed as having lost a loved one. We are in a season of death that started a year and a half ago, and we don't know why. Two weeks ago, seven days, eight deaths in our church family. By Monday night, when we had our teachers meeting, two more. We have lost young, old, natural causes, tragic causes, unspeakable, unknowable. Our own pastor has lost his 20-year-old son. We are in a season of death. And there are some of us in this room who are in the storm of grief. And we're crying out ourselves, God, why have you forsaken us? We understand that. We know the pain. 
The teaching team on Monday night was trying to understand what God is trying to get through to us. In this. Why, God, are we going through this season of death? But may I remind you, brothers and sisters, that Jesus himself said that unless a seed dies and is buried in the ground, it can't spring up to new life, transformed, bearing fruit that it was meant to bear for the kingdom of God and his purposes. What Paul experienced in his road to Damascus, when he, what Paul preached wherever he went at the risk of his own life, what Paul was so convinced of that he was willing to surrender everything to go to Rome and to proclaim to the most powerful man on, in the most powerful empire of this earth, no matter what the kind of, Paul, this man, was willing to do this because he believed and knew one thing, that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Amen. That Jesus Christ did not stay in the grave, but he broke forth and we believe it. And if he is risen, then the Lord of the storm can be Lord of your life. We do not serve a dead man from 2,000 years ago who said some nice Pinterest-worthy things. We serve a risen Lord who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is Lord of your storm. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Do you believe it? I do. Been going through my own storm this week. And uh, Wendy has been constantly reminding me, laying in bed at night, and you know, hey, you're going to get through this. There's a reason for this. God is doing something good. Because guess what? After the storm comes the, the rainbow and the promise. After the storm, after death comes life. God is doing something. So wherever you connected this morning, um, we're just going to close in a time of worship. The worship team is going to play. Elders will be here to serve communion if you'd like to do that. And I feel called this morning um, personally um, that, I, that I need to surrender to the storm I'm in. And I need to surrender to what God is doing in me and the purposes that he has for me in the storm that I'm in right now. Maybe you need to know him. Maybe you need to surrender your life to him. Maybe, he, maybe you just need to humble yourself so that in due time he can lift you up. So here's what we're gonna do as the, the worship team plays. Um, I'm, because I need to do this, I'm just going to be here in the front, kneeling and praying. And sometimes we just need to get out of our seat and make a conscious act to choose into what God is calling us to. So maybe you need to get out of seat and come down here and pray and open the door and ask Christ into your heart. Maybe you need to just come up and surrender to whatever's going on. Maybe you need to come up and say, God, I need to repent of the stupid stuff I've been doing that's bringing all this stuff on down on me. 
I don't know, whatever it is. I welcome you to join me. Just come up here and, and take care of whatever business God needs you to take care of. Lord Jesus Christ, Lord of the storm, thank you that you died on that cross, but you did not stay in the grave. Thank you that you are Lord and that we, Lord, can trust you, that no one can snatch us out of your hand. That if we humble ourselves before you in due time, we will be lifted up. And on the other side of death, there is life which you have led into. Holy Spirit, move in this room. Move in our hearts. Do your business with each one of us.